how it's going. All right, so we're going to talk about how the church in Philippi started, where, what it was like, what was going on, what things were that, and then we're going to talk about how it's going. How it's going is where we're actually going to get in to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I, re- I recognize that's just the first two verses, and some of you are thinking, this is going to take us forever to get through this book, and it might, but you're going to like it, not because of me, but because it's God's word. All right, so how it started. Well, we need to get a little context Help us understand what this might have meant to those people who first heard it. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul. It's the first word, Paul. (laughs) Okay? It's written by the Apostle Paul. There are very few scholars who would even dispute that fact, okay? I'm sure you can find some, even though it says it right there. So where is he writing from? He's writing from prison. He's writing a letter from prison. I've seen some letters people have written from prison. They weren't like this, okay? Um, I mean, they were, and it wasn't that they were bad or anything, but I just, this was, he's writing from prison. Now, his prison situation would have been a little different than we think of out at the prison today, okay? A little bit different, but anyway, he was writing from prison, and he's writing 10 years after having planted the church in Philippi, or after he had established the church in Philippi. His tone is warm and friendly, because he loves the church at Philippi. And throughout his letter, his theological instruction is actually woven into the fabric of the words. And he gives great care to those words because of his relationship with that church. This group at Philippi, this, this church had special significance for Paul. It was the first church that he planted in Europe. The first church he planted on European soil. And so it had this special significance to him. City of Philippi is where this church was. Now, Philippi was a colony of Rome. And it's been said, it's been written, that Philippi was the most Roman city that Paul visited. So the most Roman city. Well, what does it mean by that? It means that it was so much like Rome that someone would come and visit Philippi, and they'd look around, and they'd say, this reminds me of Rome. Okay, like when you go to Peoria and you look around, you're like, this reminds me of Chicago, right? Sorry, that's <laughs> some of you, some, I heard of some nervous laughter, okay? It's a crime thing. So Paul's writing this letter to these Christians in the colony of Rome called Philippi, okay? So it was very, very much a Roman in, in everything culturally that that would contain. Now, in order to more fully understand what is going on in the book of Philippians, in order to teach you Philippians, we're going to look at the book of Acts. So, take your thumb and keep it in Philippians 1, and flip over to Acts chapter 16, or you can follow along on the screen, but we're going to begin in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and we're going to read that in the following verses to begin to understand how the Philippian church was planted. As As Merida points out, we see two things that factor heavily into the beginning of the church at Philippi. So there's two really important things I just think we need to understand that, that factor into how this church in Philippi was started so that we can understand kind of some of the, again, the background, and so that when we get into the meat of the letter to them, we understand, like, he's right, like, what's the deal surrounding this, and he's writing to them about this and into this. And so, and here's the other thing. These two factors also 
will speak directly to our lives and what we currently as individuals and as a church for that matter uh, are going through. Let's begin in Acts 16. We're going to We're just going to start with verses 6 through 10 right now. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak in Asia. And when they came, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The factor here is a submission or a surrender to the Spirit. We see this as we look at Paul's ministry. This was a, he was surrendering or submitting to the will of the Holy Spirit in his life. This is submitting to God, working out his plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see in that, we see in that a pattern forming of God using these ordinary guys to fulfill his mission. And he directs them by uh, his gracious providence and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Friends, sometimes we just need to recognize that in God's providence and his sovereign plan, God often directs our paths by shutting doors. Oftentimes God will direct our paths by shutting doors. They wanted to go to there and, do, and, and, and minister, but the Holy Spirit prevented them. Many of the most well-known missionary giants, guys like William Carey, Adoram Judson, guys in, in the history of church, throughout church history and missional history, Some of those guys we look to as heroes had the experience of wanting to go somewhere and serve, but ended up serving somewhere else. See, your task, your task is to simply and faithfully carry out the work that God gives you day in and day out, day by day, every day, and always be ready and willing to change directions as the Holy Spirit leads you. So it's like, I'm going to faithfully go and do my thing day after day and then be willing to change directions as the Holy Spirit leads you. I mean, I've had this happen. I've had this happen in my life where I'm going along, I'm serving, serving in my church, preaching. And then the Holy Spirit says, you actually probably should take that thing in Dixon seriously. Oh, okay. Well, I kind of planned on staying where I was. And Illinois is not like <clears throat> the cheapest state to live in. And <laughs> so you submit and say, no, what, not what I will. Now, we were excited about it. So I don't want to paint this like I didn't want to come to. I, we wanted to come back to Dixon. We love it here. Um, but at the same time, it was like kind of unexpected, you know? And so, you look, it, it may not always be that big. It may be in your day-in, day-out stuff. You've got a plan to go to the grocery store, and the Holy Spirit leads you in front of somebody at the coffee shop who needs prayer, needs to hear about Jesus. Are we willing to drop that 
when the Spirit leads us in a different direction. Maybe, maybe you're spending too much time on your 10-year plan. Maybe you're spending too much time on your 10-year plan and you need to think more about your next 10-day plan. Don't waste your life always looking ahead. I think looking ahead is fine. Nothing wrong with planning. Planning is good. I plan my sermons out. I kind of know what books I'm going to go and everything. But I'm always open to that changing because the Holy Spirit can be just as involved in your planning as he is with your day-to-day, okay? So nothing wrong with planning, but be willing. We talk about this on Wednesday night. Uh, assume you may not be 100% correct. And so you may, there may be a change of plans. Or you may be supposed to go that way for a while and then God's going to change directions. On, not, he, it's always the same direction for him, but he may change your direction. Don't waste your life. Follow Jesus now, not in the future. Oh, well, I'm going to do this now, and then uh, once the kids get graduated, and once I get this done, then I can start serving at church. No. Start serving Jesus now. You don't know what's going to come in the future. So here's the question. What is it that you've been putting off? What is it in your life, in following Christ, that you've been putting off? Maybe it's telling someone about Jesus. Maybe there's a new work that the Spirit is leading you to start. Have you recently had coffee or lunch with someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus? Maybe there's something else that, that you've been... Maybe you're sitting there and you're, you're reading, you're studying the Bible, and, and, and the Lord is speaking to you, and you've been praying, you just feel this urge like God is pulling you in this direction, and it agrees with what he says in Scripture. And you're like, ah, but I'm just... And you've been delaying it. Don't delay don't delay. These are important questions because, see, a second point that factored into the beginning of the Philippian church, that first one was a, a submission to the leading of the Spirit, right? The second point, though, that factored into that was evangelistic encounters. So because Paul and his team, because they submitted to the leading of the Spirit when they were prevented from going somewhere, so they went another place ministering, Because of that, God led them to evangelistic encounters. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 11, go through 34. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come to gather together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, Can we just stop and love that for a minute? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so great. He's so annoyed, and I love that his response to being so annoyed by that is what happens next. So anyway, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And they came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Let me stop there for just a second. Okay, this doesn't sound like it's going great. All right? They go, preach the gospel. Lydia is, uh, is converted. Her household as well. Baptized. And uh, then they get hauled off because Paul, Paul got annoyed at this gal and cast a demon out of her. <laughs> and, and they get hauled off because they're disturbing the peace, which means they're, you know, taking these guys' ability to make money off that poor slave girl, okay? And then they get beaten with rods and put in stocks in jail. Doesn't, you know, how it's going, or how it started, how it's going. Doesn't sound like it's going great, but let's, let's continue because this is important to how this church in Philippi started. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now stop. They were singing praises to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Talk about a captive audience, anyway. And immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's an amazing story, right? This this series of events from them arriving, actually from them not being able to go where they were going to go to, you know, hearing the guy from Macedonia come and help us and then going and meeting Lydia with this group of women and then, like, ending up in jail. Never mind the fact that in the middle of that, he's casting a demon out, okay? This is a wild, I've, that is, I've never had a Saturday night like that, okay? This is like several, this is like, if you have had a Saturday night like that, we should have a conversation later. But um, th- th- this, is, this is a, my goodness. And this is not just one night, right? This is several days, but 
craziness. Just wild. Here's the thing, though. As crazy as some of those things sound, when we go back to the start of the church at Philippi, how it started wasn't really with a bang, though. It didn't start with a big team of people and a band and a smoke machine a projector and lights and all the stuff that the cool stuff we have. I mean, we don't have a smoke machine, and I don't want one, but sorry. My friend from a big church says they're called hazers anyway because they make a haze. Uh, it didn't start like that, though. It started small, quiet, and lowly. It starts as Paul encounters a women's prayer meeting. Now, some of you have been at women's prayer meetings. You're like, those aren't quiet. Um, <clears throat> love you, ladies. Uh, it starts, Paul goes to this women's prayer meeting. He meets this woman, Lydia, who was a God-fearer in all likelihood. She wasn't a Christian yet. Okay, but she was a God-fearer. They're there. Paul begins teaching. And what does God do? God opens her heart and her mind to believe the gospel. Folks, when you share the gospel with someone, you're not alone. Let me say that again. When you share the gospel with someone, you are not alone. The Holy Spirit is working. We have to trust this truth that God is the one who opens hearts. I am not the one that opens hearts. God opens hearts. Paul went to a new area where no one had been reached with the gospel yet. And you know what? He preached the Bible. And guess what happened when he preached the Bible? People got saved. People came to know Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it still works that way. It still works that way. That when the word of God is correctly and rightly preached, the gospel is proclaimed, people believe and are saved. That's what we do. That's why we do it. This should act as an encouragement to all of us. This should act as an encouragement to all of us to do the work of evangelism and the work of church planting. Because the church in Philippi started when the Bible was opened, the gospel proclaimed, and a woman believed. From that point on, actually, women were very prominent in that church. Okay? Not elders, not pastors, not anything that would conflict with anywhere else in the Bible, but they were very prominent in the ministry in Philippi. Okay? And I think that's important. That's very important to remember. So that's how it started. So now we've got to ask, how's it going? how it's going. Paul's chief theme in this letter is encouragement. He wants to encourage the Philippian Christians to live out their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony instead of a Roman colony, a heavenly kingdom. This would be evident by the outflow of their increased service to God and one another. So their increased service to God and one another is going to be evidence that they actually belong to the heavenly colony, the kingdom of heaven, and not simply Rome. The way of life that's described by Paul was shown perfectly and uniquely 
in Jesus Christ. And as we will see, it was evident also in the lives of Paul and of Timothy and their good buddy Epaphroditus. Paul and Timothy, who... So Paul is writing this letter. and Paul and Timothy are sending it together, though. It's from them. Paul wrote it. They're sending this letter to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, and their message was grace and peace, gratitude and affection. They want to encourage them. They want to thank them, show them their affection. But let's begin by taking a look at the, I know you guys are like, we've been at this for half an hour. You just said we're beginning. We're beginning with the book. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, let's take a look and, and see how Paul addresses them and what we can take away from that to set ourselves up for the rest of the series. So Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing I want you to recognize there, and this is not on the slides or anything, but I just want you to notice that there's a recognition of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture anywhere, but the concept of Trinity actually is. I mean, but here, even in verse 2, you have uh, God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You have this recognition of God the Father and God the Son. God the Father and God the Son. Now, in, uh, if you read in, in Acts chapter 16 where we were, it had also talked about the Spirit, okay? It's not, Holy Spirit's not expressly mentioned here. But this idea that, this idea of Trinity, that blessing of Trinity. They call it, so, this, so the scholars call it Trinitarian blessing, but I thought that was a big, bigger word than I wanted to use for this. So. At the beginning of the letter, though, and, and this is pretty common with Paul, he'll have this salutation or greeting at the beginning of his letter. Now, Paul does some things in this section that I, I want, because this is a very short section of Scripture. Some of you are like, in Micah, we were covering, you know, full chapters, right? Uh, there's some things that I want to focus on, because if we're not careful, our tendency is that we might zip right by them to get on to the rest of the book. And I, uh, these, the salutations and the conclusions of these letters are actually important as well. First thing that he does, though, is he designates Timothy and himself as servants, he designates them as servants. The, this emphasis is going to carry on throughout the rest of the letter. It's especially evident, though, in the section in Philippians 2, which we're not going to read right now, but Philippians 2, 5 through 11, on the humiliation of Christ, on Christ's humility, submitting himself even to death on a cross. Even though he was God, he didn't consider that something to be, to be gained. And he submitted himself even to death on the cross. And so what Paul's doing is he's saying, yeah, we're, we're servants of Jesus. Because Paul did not want anyone to think highly of him, but highly of Jesus. And so right there at the beginning, he says, we're servants. We're servants. And that is another recognition of that submission to the will of the Spirit that we talked about earlier. We can go in more on that, but let's keep going. We see God's amazing grace 
in the stories of the lives of the people sending this letter. We see God's amazing grace in their life stories. Paul, who says, I'm submitted, I'm just a servant. Remember Paul, he went from persecuting the church. Like when he was met and his life was radically rearranged by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to Damascus to get the Christians and put them in chains. And he goes from persecuting the church to planting churches. It's amazing. We see God's grace and God's power to save in his life. Timothy was taught about the Lord by his mother and his grandmother and raised up to be an, a pastor, an elder by Paul. And Paul refers to the Christians who he's writing to as saints. Now there's grace displayed in this. There's grace displayed in the simple fact that Paul is able to call them saints. So here's the question. What is a saint? Because we've heard that used. Someone does something really nice for us and someone says, oh, you're such a saint. Well, they might not be. This might just be a really nice person who doesn't know anything about Jesus. So what's a saint? Well, a saint, it's not some kind of super special designation of some super beyond amazing person or a turbo Christian. No, it's not that. They had become saints because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented of their sin and believed the good news. Paul preached the pure gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect in every way, crucified as a substitute for us sinners for our sin, died in our place and risen from the dead three days later. And if you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, trusting the good news that he died in your place for your sins and that he rose to life again, then you too get to be called a saint. It's another word for Christ follower, Christian saint. It's what Christians are, saints. As I mentioned earlier, Paul addresses then the overseers and deacons. He's sending this to them with the overseers and deacons that are there with them, uh, with the people. And this is just a reminder that the overseers were uh, the elders, the pastors, who have spiritual oversight over the congregations, and deacons are entrusted with matters of practical service. And we see the more grace displayed in some of them, we see grace had, excuse me, we see grace displayed in that some of them had risen out and been called uh, had risen and been qualified men that were to equip and serve the saints um, on their mission of advancing the gospel. And we see grace displayed in that God provides qualified men to lead the church. God provides what the church needs. Friends, the local church is plan A for spreading the gospel. There is no plan B. Okay? Multi-conglomerate mission organizations are not ultimately plan A. Plan A is the local church. Church planting is how the gospel is spread and there is no plan B. And we see that in Philippians and in the way the Philippian church was started. Another key theme is in this affectionate thank you note, thank you letter, it's much more than that, is joy even in hardship. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are mentioned because they exemplified a Christ-centered, gospel-focused life, the kind of life that Paul wanted the Philippians to emulate. Now, because he was in prison, the only way for Paul to give them the kind of encouragement he wanted was via letter. Okay, he couldn't FaceTime. 
Okay. He had to send a letter. And he's assuring the church that even though he's in prison, he is still in good spirits. He's really eager as well to thank them for their continued support. Epaphroditus had brought a gift from the church to Paul. So Paul's writing back and thanking them for his friendship, for their friendship, their support. But again, it's more than a thank you note. He's wanting to encourage them to persevere with joy in spite of opposition. He even draws on some commonly used military language of that time, exhorting them to spread the gospel bravely as fellow servants of the true king, Jesus, even in the face of terrifying opposition. Yet another theme throughout the book is partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. See, it's not just about joy. It's not just about having joy for joy's sake, but it's about having joy, fearlessly advancing the gospel with joy and working together in hardship. That means that we, even though it's hard work, we're doing it with joy and we're doing it together in unity, working together. Merida points out six challenges of application from the book of Philippians as a whole. I just want to share these with you very quickly because I want you to be looking for these also as we go along in this book. And I think they'll say a lot to you today as well. Number one is recognize that gospel advancement will cost us. Recognize that gospel advancement will cost us, but Jesus is worth it. The gospel advancing here and around the world will cost us something. Money, time, friends, aches, pains, reputation, whatever it is. It will cost us something. But no matter what the cost, we've got to remember that Jesus is worth it. He's worth paying that price. Number two, fight for joy in Christ. And we're going to talk about that further. But we've got to fight for joy in Christ because everything in our world seems to be coming against you having joy in Christ. Doesn't it? Some days, folks, I wake up, and I come in here, and I get to the office. Usually I've listened to a podcast or two by then. You know, I get in, and I flip it open, and, you know, there's something on the Facebook feed or something pops up, or you pop up on Twitter, you see some story, and you're just like, got to fight for joy in Christ. Because everything else is going to fight against it. Number three, maintain the unity of the Spirit. As a church moving forward, advancing the gospel, we've got to be unified with the unity of the Spirit. And we're going to have to work to maintain that. That's actually uh, part, of, part of some of the things that our deacons and elders will be doing is trying to maintain unity of the Spirit. Four, become a Macedonian giver. I'm not going to go into the passage, but it's 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7. I'm just going to read the first two verses out of that. It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealthy generosity on their part. Poverty and generosity. If you keep reading in that passage, it talks that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. I don't know how. Exactly. 
But we need to be Macedonian givers because, again, the cost, the cost is going to be high but worth it. Number five, we've got to learn what gospel partnership looks like. We have to learn what gospel partnership looks like, whether that's cooperating with each other uh, in ministries, whether it's cooperating with like-minded and, and, and similar believing churches, or other organizations, networks, whatever, we need to learn what gospel partnership looks like. Because even those churches back then, I mean, they didn't have denominations and all that stuff. They didn't have that. But when a church was in trouble, they took up a collection from the other churches to help them out. We got we to figure out, they would help support each other's, you know, the mission of spreading and advancing the gospel. We got to learn what that looks like. Number six, This is the last one. As a church, let's give the world a picture of the coming kingdom of God. When people are around us that are not that are not part of us yet, I say yet, right? When people come and visit us, whether it be here or some event we do, you know, somewhere we're somewhere, or they just run into a couple of us talking in Walmart, whatever it is. Just like I talked about Philippi and Rome. I want people to bust in here and, and look at us and be like, oh, this, this looks like the kingdom of God. People that maybe don't have anything in common except Jesus. Gather together in unity for the advancing of the gospel. And somebody walks in and looks and can say, yeah, this, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Because that's what the church is supposed to be. What the church is supposed to be. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I hope you will uh, just go with me on it. I warned them they already know. Surrendering to what the Lord will show us in the book of Philippians as we march through Philippians. Surrendering to what the Lord will show us in this, in this letter is going to be important. We need to decide actually right now. Like, like we came in here and, and probably hoping to hear a good message, you know. But what, what, I, what I want us to do is right now, we need to decide. When I hear from God's word, am I going to submit to what it says and obey? When God leads me in a direction that agrees with his word, am I going to submit and obey? See, that's, I think we need to answer that question before it's asked. This is, what this is, is this is taking, think of your life as like a check, like the checkbook of your life. Not, I'm not talking about your money. I mean, it could be that, but um, I'm talking about like giving God a blank check, signing your name and letting God fill in the amount of whatever it is, your life, your service, your, I'm not, again, not talking about your money necessarily. So if you're worried about that, why? But anyway, it's a whole other thing. It's saying with your life, taking your life as that, as that check and saying, the check is signed. Here you go, God. You fill in whatever you require. Because as we go through the book of Philippians, you're going to likely be confronted with some stuff where you're going to have a choice whether you're going to submit to what God says or you're going to go do it your own way in the way you've done it for the last 20 years, 30 years, for whatever. Some of you, God's probably going to tell you some things and show you some things and call you out on some things 
with Philippians, and you need to decide what you're going to do when he moves in you. Are you going to say, yes, Lord, or are you going to be obstinate and complacent, as we often are? You need need to make that choice. So I'm going to do something kind of different this morning. Um, I have not done this in the past here at Hope. I did this at some of my other churches every Sunday. So what we're going to do is we're going to have, during this last song, we're going to have altar prayer time, okay? So the front of this church, just kind of like up here in this general area, below the stage or step, I guess I guess it's a stage, right, um, is the altar. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is come during the song. Some of you, if you're going to stay and sing, that's fine. Some of you, if you feel led, if you want to come, come and kneel at the altar have some prayer time. If, if God has spoken to you and you need to do business with God, I want to invite you as we sing to step out of your row, make your way up here and simply kneel down and do business with God. It might have something to do with the message. It, it might be completely unrelated, but I want to invite you to come and submit yourself to what God has said and is saying in his word. And we're not going to prolong it like those old big tent revivals where they sing 85 verses and if you don't come, I'm going to start preaching again. That's not what's going to happen, okay? We're going to sing a song, we're going to pray, and as long as people are praying, we'll keep, we'll keep playing music. Um, but this is a time for you to do business with God. I used to tell my students when I was a youth pastor, uh, you've got no excuse right now. Like I would provide them with a little response time like this, and I would say, you have no excuse for saying, oh, I just didn't have time to spend time with God this week. I'm giving you five minutes right now, just you and God. And so if you need somebody to pray with you, uh, we've got enough people in this room. Uh, grab somebody and have them come pray with you. That's being the church for one another, with one another as well. It's dedicated to God's people seeking God's face in prayer. Now, a couple of things. If you come forward to pray, I don't think something's wrong with you. I think something's right with you. Number two, if you're not physically able to come kneel down, you are welcome to just pray where you are. You are welcome to, uh, or come sit on the front row and pray. That, that's fine too. I absolutely understand that. I do know this though. I heard someone say once that, I heard someone say that physical actions have spiritual consequences. Now that may not work if you play it all the way out, but there's something to that. The act of physically saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to kneel together with my brothers and sisters and I'm going to pray. And so um, I don't want you to hear that as some kind of false guilt pressure. I don't think any worse of you if you don't pray. But I just wanted to, I know I'm spending a lot of time explaining this, but it's the first time that I've done it here. I want to make sure that you guys understand. So I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to sing. And during the music, if you want to come kneel and pray, then I just invite you to come and do business with God. And if you don't, then stand there and sing your heart out or let the music wash over you and bless your heart. Um, Would you stand with me, please? I'll pray and then you come and, and, and pray as you feel led. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for this body of believers, this church that you've called me to. I thank you that you've given us your word. God, that you've, you, you've given, you didn't, send, you didn't put us here and leave us with no lifeline. You didn't put us here and leave us by ourselves. You've given us the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You've given us your word speaking to us. God, you lead us. You guide us day by day. Help us to submit to your leadership. 
Guide us in our prayers. God, if there are those here who've never met you, God, I pray today would be their day of salvation, the day they would repent of their sin and trust the good news of you, Jesus. You died in our place for our sin. That you rose again. You're returning. God, help us to be real. Help us to not be fake religious people, but help us be truly submitted, fully devoted followers of you who, who make disciples, who seek the gospel to be advanced here and around the world, Jesus. Lord, start with me. Start with me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The altar's open at this time.